Well, today we are wrapping up the first half of the book of Daniel. If you remember, I said Daniel is evenly divided between the first and second half, the first six chapters and the second six chapters. Uh, The first six are largely historical. That's what we're wrapping up today. There is prophecy a little bit, but it's largely historical. The last six are largely prophetical. So we are by no means done with Daniel. This is, if we were in a play, this would be the intermission, okay? We're an old movie. This is the intermission. You go out, stretch your legs. Um, Pastor Jason will begin preaching for Matthew, and then we will resume the prophetical portions. Nevertheless, this chapter by no means disappoints, as it is the famous story of Daniel and the lion's den. The chapter, in terms of themes, has much in common with chapter 3 in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the golden image. Again, we see state-sponsored idolatry with the threat of state-sponsored persecution. And just as with chapter 3, part of the main point of this chapter, as Jason said, is that God is able to deliver. Deliver. If you remember, when we went through chapter 3, I pointed out the repeated references to deliverance. Nebuchadnezzar at first threatens Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and says, And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Amazing that in God's grace, many years later, that own, that own man would be delivered from his sins by the same God that he just blasphemed right there. By the end of the chapter, however, he confesses in his degree, there is no other God who is able to deliver in this way. Similarly, in this chapter, we read King Darius say to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. And likewise, at the end of the chapter, he too makes confession in a decree that this God is the God who delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who has also delivered Daniel from the power of of the lions. So just as God is able to deliver under the Babylonians, he's able to deliver under the Persians. It makes no difference to God. They come and they go. God is the same. Our God is also able to deliver under whomever his people find themselves today as well. This way, it's very similar to chapter 3. Furthermore, just as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are examples of faithful believers under persecution. So also in this chapter is Daniel. We'll see, very much I found his, uh, it's very moving. He's an old man by this point. He doesn't say a lot in this chapter, but his actions and and his demeanor is, is very, very moving. However, what makes this chapter unique is that Daniel here is not just an example of a faithful believer under persecution. Really, he is a picture of Jesus Christ and the typology in this chapter between Daniel and Christ, Christ in his suffering, Christ in his trial, Christ in his death and resurrection. The typology is just off of the charts. I would say there are some chapters where you see um, Christ very clearly in the Old Testament, and this is especially one of them. So Daniel definitely is an example. He is an example. We will consider that. But more than that, he is a picture of Christ. Christ, too, was an example to be followed, as we just read from 1 Peter 2. Josh just read where he says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. More than that, Christ is not just an example. He is our deliverer. 
As Peter also says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. So Daniel is both an example of a Christian trusting his deliverer God, but he's also a picture of that delivering God, delivering his people from death, Satan, and sin. Well, having said all that, let's go ahead and dive into this famous text now, beginning in verse 1. It says, It seemed good to Darius to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom, that they would be in charge of the whole kingdom, and over them three commissioners, of whom Daniel was one, that these satraps might be accountable to them, that the king might not suffer loss. Well, here, this is really the only historical matter of this whole chapter that we will have to somewhat do a little bit of a deep dive on, though hopefully we won't spend too much time here. It has to do with this figure called Darius the Mede. We're not totally sure who Darius the Mede was. No one by that name is attested in any other historical sources. This is not Darius the Great, as he was later be called, the Darius who is mentioned in the book of Ezra, that Darius would later rule the Persian Empire, but this is far too early for that Darius to appear. The events of the book of Ezra don't take place for about another hundred years after the events of this chapter. As far as this Darius is unknown to history, at least by this name. What we do know about the Persian Empire at this time as it's called in, in Scripture, the empire of the Medes and the Persians. What we do know as far as who was in charge when Babylon fell, it was undoubtedly Cyrus the Great. He is really the king of the Medes and Persians. He is the conqueror of Babylon. Whereas Babylon was roughly uh, in the equivalent of modern-day Iraq, Cyrus the Great hailed from modern-day Iran. His father was a Persian, and his mother was a Mede. The Persians and the Medes were two different peoples who lived uh, in modern-day Iran, but they were eventually united under Cyrus's kingship. He conquered many great and famous ancient kingdoms before eventually turning his attention to Babylon, which he also conquered. Cyrus's coming is, in fact, something that was prophesied specifically by name, about a hundred years before he actually arised. He's, he's uh, mentioned uh, by Isaiah the prophet, and this just kind of drives critics mad. This is one of the reasons why they just lose their mind. God could not know the names of you know, people. The infinite God who has creative power from his mouth could by no means know the name of a man who's going to come a hundred years later. There in Isaiah, he is even said to be the anointed, the Messiah of the Lord, insofar as he will accomplish the will of the Lord. It says in Isaiah 45, verse 1 and 3, Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed. Also, as a little side note, Cyrus in Hebrew Hebrew is Koresh. Koresh. Sound familiar? Not too long ago, a man whose name was Vernon Howell took that name and also took the name David. David Koresh. He was calling himself the anointed of the Lord, down in Waco. That's where he gets that. The real Koresh, however, God says of him, Koresh, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, to open doors, 
before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will give you the treasures of darkness and hidden wealth of secret places so that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who calls you by name. So over a hundred years before he was born, this prophecy told of the coming of Cyrus the Great, who would ultimately bring judgment on the Babylonians for, for bringing destruction upon the people of God. Who then, however, is this Darius the Mede that we're told about at the end of chapter 5, who received the kingdom the night when Babylon fell? Some have suggested that this just proves that Daniel is again a book of fiction, or maybe that it's such a later book, it's written hundreds of years later, and they say, oh, whoever, the Jews who wrote this, they were confused with Darius the Great, they wrote him here, they were all confused, um, and so there's the, the critics just kind of get all hopping mad about this, or about uh, this figure here. In response to this, on the one hand, while there are no other historical sources that name a Darius at this time that we know of, nevertheless, remember that an absence of evidence is by no means an evidence of absence. And it was not very long ago that they said the same thing about King Belshazzar until an old Englishman a couple hundred years ago did some digging in Babylon and found, guess what? There is a Belshazzar. So just, just wait. We'll find Darius. Who then is Darius the Mede? Some suggest that this is just a name, another name for Cyrus. Ancient kings often had multiple names that they went by, there are examples of this in Scripture. For example, King Solomon, in 2 Samuel chapter 12, he has the name Jedidiah. doesn't really sound like it goes with a great king, does it? But it's Jedidiah. The king of Assyria, Tiglath-Pileser, another in the same verse in 1 Chronicles 5, is called by another name that he was known by, Pol. So it's by no means a stretch to suggest that this could possibly be just another name for Cyrus. The only difficulty with this proposal is that it seems from Scripture itself that Darius and Cyrus were two different men, or at least that seems to be the meaning of verse 28 in chapter 6, which says, so this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Another option, one of which I am, I am a big fan, I was, I was persuaded of this, is that Darius the Mede was actually another name for one of Cyrus's generals who did rule over Babylon for a short period of time as what we would call a military governor. The Greeks tell us this general's name was Gobrius, or Gobruus is how you would pronounce it. It is said that the night when Babylon fell, Cyrus was not actually there, or he left immediately after to chase after King Nabonidus who fled, but the troops that diverted the water and took the city were under the command of a Gobrius. This is confirmed in cuneiform cylinders, namely the Nabonidus Chronicle that I mentioned a couple weeks ago. There we are told of one of Cyrus's subordinates whose name is either Gubaru or Ugbaru. You can hear the similarity to the Greek account of Gobrias, Ugbaru, Gobrias. The chronicle tells us on the 16th day, Ugbru, governor of Gutium, and the army of Cyrus, without a battle, entered Babylon. The Greeks also tell us that the city fell without a fight. When the waterway was diverted, the Persians just entered and the city surrendered. 
Other sources tell us that Nabonidus and Belshazzar were highly unpopular, and no one wanted to lay down their life on their behalf. In any event, the chronicle says on the 16th day, Ugburu, governor of Gutium, and the army of Cyrus without a battle entered Babylon. Now, what's really interesting about that is Ugburu is said to be the governor of Gutium. And as every school child knows in Texas, Gutium is another name for ancient media, right? That's where the Medes are. It's kind of like how you would refer to England and Britain. This is just another name for the Medes. Furthermore, the troops underneath him were from Gutium. They were Medes, which very likely means this man, Gobrius, was a Mede himself. Furthermore, we are told in the Nabonidus Chronicle that just as Darius appointed governors of the conquered territory, so also this Ugburu appointed men to govern. It says, quote, Ugburu, Cyrus's district officer, appointed the district officers of Babylon. So it's very possible that that's who this king figure is. He's a military governor, but functionally he is the king of this conquered territory. It may, it may be that Cyrus even gave him the title. In any event, however, even the chronicle states that Ugburu died very shortly after this period, at which Cyrus himself fully became king of these conquered lands, which would explain the phrase at the end of chapter 6 that Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. In any event, we just need to wait. People will keep digging. I'm sure in time we will find Darius the Mede written down somewhere. All right? Okay. Continuing in verse 3. It says, Then this Daniel began distinguishing himself among the commissioners and the satraps, because he possessed an extraordinary spirit. And the king planned to appoint him over the entire kingdom. And the commissioners and the satraps began trying to find a ground of accusation against Daniel in regard to government affairs. They could find no ground of accusation or evidence of corruption inasmuch as he was faithful, and no negligence or corruption was to be found in him. This here is the very first parallel that we begin to see between Daniel and Christ in this chapter, and there are many. First of all, these men are jealous. They have been fools throughout the whole book of Daniel. They always fail. Again, they are failing, and these Jews, these exiles are being promoted again, and they are jealous. Daniel is outshining them. Is even to seek, he's even seeking to put him over the whole kingdom. So also with our Lord, he outshined the Pharisees. They were envious of him. They loved the position of power and being praised as the religious leaders and great teachers of Israel. John tells us in John 12, verse 19, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Similarly, Matthew tells us in Matthew 27 that Pilate knew, quote, that because of envy, they had handed him over. Secondly, Christ, like Daniel, but in a far greater way, was absolutely innocent and without sin or corruption, so innocent that his accusers can't find anything against him. Matthew tells us, quote, that the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came 
forward. The high priest did not have the advantage of being pagan Babylonians who could entrap Jesus with a decree to worship some other god, but that didn't stop them from trying to put him to death. Continuing in verse 5. Then these men said, We will not find any ground of accusation against this Daniel unless we find it against him with regard to the law of his God. Then these commissioners and satraps came by agreement to the king and spoke to him as follows. King Darius, live forever. All the commissioners of the kingdom, the prefects and the satraps, the high officials and the governors have consulted together that the king should establish a statute and enforce an injunction that anyone who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days shall be cast into the lion's den. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it may not be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which may not be revoked. Therefore, King Darius signed the document, that is, the injunction. Now, the king doesn't know it yet. He has just fallen prey to flattery, but he just got played. These men have no care at all about Darius. All they want to do is get rid of a political rival. It mentions, and this will become important later, that the laws of the Medes and the Persians cannot be undone. Okay, we'll mention, that's important. Verse 10. Now, when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. On his roof chamber, he had windows open toward Jerusalem, and he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God, as he had been doing previously. When I first read this, this, move, this verse moved me so much. Um, chapter 3 and chapter 6 are very similar, and yet with Daniel, he's, he's an old man. There's just this quiet resolve in him. He doesn't say anything. Nothing is recorded like the bold words of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He doesn't say, If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, we are not going to pray to anyone else but our God. He doesn't say anything like that. Rather, he goes home, shuts the door, gets on his knees as he has done for decades now. And he prays to his God. In this also, he is like Christ. As Isaiah 53 tells us, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. We see here where Daniel's great strength comes from. He is a man of prayer. Three times a day, certainly from the time of his youth, he prayed, confessed, and gave thanks to his God. We're told that his windows were open and faced towards Jerusalem. And in this way, I would say he kept not merely his eyes, but his heart on the land of his God. Remember, forgetfulness was one of the great threats, one of the great sins you could fall into in exile. Remember Psalm 137, if I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her skill. Daniel was a very busy man. There are many ways he could have gotten caught up in the wealth, the intrigue, the politics, the life, and everything there was in Babylon. His head was indeed full of business, 
but his heart was back in his homeland. He had not forgotten it. I think there is a beautiful picture here of how we are to pray as far as what we are to set our hearts on as we live as sojourners and exiles in this world. Now, we do not pray to any city. We do not pray to any direction, contrary to Romanists who pray to the east. In fact, our confession of faith says, neither prayer nor any other part of religious worship is now under the gospel tied to or made more acceptable by any place in which it is performed or towards which it is directed. Okay? Nevertheless, there is a sense in which we pray towards the heavenly Jerusalem, and our hearts are set on it. This is indeed what our Lord taught us when he taught his disciples to pray. We are to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So also, although we live in this world, brothers and sisters, we work here even invest here. There's nothing wrong with that by any means, yet our hearts are set upon the heavenly Jerusalem. Andrew Willett says, this looking of Daniel towards Jerusalem out of the captivity of Babylon teaches us that we being set here in the world as in the captivity of Babylon should out of this confused estate look to the heavenly Jerusalem. Doesn't that often describe the world we live in? A confused estate? You read the news, you look on, you're like, I don't know what's going on. There's corruption, there's UFOs, people are talking, what the heck is going on? Put your heart out of this confused estate upon the heavenly Jerusalem and pray for its coming. Well, these men have laid their trap, but Daniel will by no means stop praying to his God, and they know this about him. It says in verse 11, Then these men came by agreement and found Daniel making petition and supplication before his God. Then they approached and spoke before the king about the king's injunction. Did you not sign an injunction that any man who makes a petition to any god or man besides you, O king, for 30 days is to be cast into the lion's den? The king replied, the statement is true according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which may not be revoked. And they answered and spoke before the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, O king, or to the injunction which you have signed, but keeps making his petition three times a day. As soon as the king heard this statement, he was deeply distressed and set his mind on delivering Daniel. And even until sunset, he kept exerting himself to rescue him. He realizes, you know, what he thought you know, I am, a, I am a great king. People should pray to me only for 30 days. That was all flattery. He was getting played. It had nothing to do for his honor. He realizes it. They're just getting rid of Daniel. He seeks now to set him free until sunset, it says, exerting himself. He's probably consulting with legal advisors. He's trying to find some kind of a loophole to free Daniel, whom he knows is innocent. Here, I would say we see another parallel, namely, someone who knows that Christ is innocent or that this person is innocent and tries to set them free, just as Pontius Pilate did with Jesus Christ. Pilate also essentially got played. He was between a rock and a hard place, and the Jews knew it and took advantage of the situation. We're told in John 19, 12, 
Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes, him out, makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Chaldeans and the magicians say something similar in the following verse, in verse 15. And these men came by agreement to the king and said to the king, Recognize, O king, it is a law of the Medes and Persians that no injunction or statute which the king establishes may be changed. So it says in verse 16, the king gave orders and Daniel was brought in and cast into the lion's den. So also Pilate sought to wash his hands of the blood of Christ, but handed him over to be crucified. Verse 16 says, I'm sorry, verse 16 continues. The king spoke and said to Daniel, your God whom you constantly serve will himself deliver you. A stone was brought and laid over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the signet rings of his nobles, so that nothing would be changed in regard to Daniel. Similarly, Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go make it as secure as you know how. They went in and made the grave secure. Along with the guard, they set a seal on the stone. We're told then in verse 17, The king went off to his palace and spent the night fasting, And no entertainment was brought in before him, and his sleep fled from him. And the king arose at dawn at the break of day and went in haste to the lion's den. Christ's disciples, too, came hastily at the break of dawn to the tomb. Told in John chapter 20, now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. Verse 20. When he had come near the den to Daniel, he cried out with a troubled voice. The king spoke and said to Daniel, Daniel! Servant of the living God, has your God, whom you constantly serve, been able to deliver you from the lions? Daniel spoke to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent his angel and shut the lion's mouth, and they have not harmed me, inasmuch as I was found innocent before him. And also towards you, O king, I have committed no crime. Then the king was very pleased and gave orders for Daniel to be taken up out of the den, So Daniel was taken up out of the den, and no injury was found on him, because he had trusted in his God. Here, the same angel who rescued Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the angel, the angel of the Lord, whose appearance, Nebuchadnezzar says, is like that of the son of the gods. Here, he too comes to help Daniel. The type, Christ, comes to rescue the antitype. Daniel. And yet, while God did not leave Christ in the tomb, neither did he spare him from death as he did with Daniel. And in this way, I would say this is where we see the type far outpace the antitype and where Christ leaves Daniel behind. Christ had to taste death that he might break the power of death. The author of Hebrews tells us, We do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. Daniel escaped death. Christ broke its power. Interestingly, I would say another parallel between Daniel and Christ is seen in Psalm 22, the famous psalm where Christ cries out during his crucifixion, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It also says in verse 12, Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. The father gave the son over to the lions of death as a lamb to the slaughter. And yet in this, he conquered death. In this, he was the lion of the tribe of Judah. It says to John in Revelation chapter 1, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Because he was delivered over to death, he is the deliverer from death. As the author of Hebrews continues, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Death comes for all of us, as I stressed a couple weeks ago. Funny enough, this last week, um, Mark Hogan was going to preach in the morning, but he got really sick, so I took my sermon from the previous week. And I tried to impress upon all their children there as well to number their days. And again, I gave the analogy. I said, one day a man will stand just like I am now over your dead body as you lay in a casket. Death comes for us all. For the Christian, this is not fearful. This is a joy. This is when we go back to the heavenly country. We are going back to the homeland, out of exile, where our citizenship is. We are being set free from bondage and indwelling sin and the maladies of the body. These will be with us no more. That's what awaits us. So we do not fear death. That's the power of Christ's victory. So freed are we from the power of death that even horrible deaths are not something that we necessarily fear, or at least when faced with them, they are an honor, even if we are eaten by lions. This last week, I was preparing for the book study in Irenaeus, and in the intro, Ignatius of Antioch is mentioned, and I did a little bit of perusing of some of his letters, and I found an amazing example of the kind of freedom from the fear of death even death by being eaten alive by lions in one of his letters. Just as Daniel was threatened under pain of death with worshiping false gods, though he refused, so also Ignatius, as other Christians of his time, were threatened with pain of death if they did not sacrifice to idols. And yet, whereas Daniel was delivered from the lions, Ignatius was not. Rather, history tells us he was killed by the lions in the Colosseum of Rome for entertainment. And yet so delivered was Ignatius from the fear of death that he welcomed such a death. This is the power of Christ's victory. 
He wrote a letter to the Christians in Rome, and it's one of the most astounding things ever written in history. Just when you read it, you're like, wow, that's, that's amazing. He said, I write to the churches and impress on them all that I shall willingly die for God unless you hinder me. I beseech of you not to show an unseasonable goodwill towards me. Allow me to become food for the wild beasts through whose instrumentality it will be granted me to attain to God. I am the wheat of God, and let me be ground by the teeth of wild beasts that I may be found the pure bread of Christ. Rather, entice the wild beasts that they may become my tomb and may leave nothing of my body, so that when I have fallen asleep in death, I may be of no trouble to any of you. Then shall I truly be a disciple of Christ, when the world shall not see so much as my body." Entreat Christ for me, that by these instruments I may be found a sacrifice to God. I do not, as Peter and Paul, issue commandments unto you. They were apostles. I am but a condemned man. They were free, while I am, even until now, a servant. But when I suffer, I shall be the freed man of Jesus and rise again emancipated in him. That's the power of Christ's victory over death. That's the power of the Spirit of God inside one of Christ's servants. That even being eaten alive by wild beasts was welcome by him. As I said, if that sounds terrifying to you, you feel like you don't have the courage right now. Uh, All of us do, okay? Because we've not been faced with that. Therefore, the Spirit has not been given the portion of the Spirit to go through that. And yet, if we were... Such is the power of Christ's victory and the power of the Spirit, that when he calls his disciples to go through such a thing, he gives them all the strength and the courage that they need for it. And Ignatius is just one of thousands of examples. Continuing on in verse 24, it says, The king then gave orders, and they brought those men who had maliciously accused Daniel, and they cast them, their children and their wives, into the lion's den, They had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. Then Darius the king wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language who were living in all the land, May your peace abound. I make a decree that in all the dominion of my kingdom men are to fear and tremble before the God of Daniel, for he is the living God and enduring forever, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever." He delivers and rescues and performs signs and wonders in heaven and on earth, who's also delivered Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel enjoyed success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. Well, with that, we end the historical portion of the book of Daniel. I pray you have been encouraged, to say the least, You have been awed at the size of the magnitude of your God, his utter supremacy over all things. He rules over the hearts of kings. He sets the lowliest upon the thrones. He rules over fire so that it cannot cannot consume the flesh of his subjects. He even rules over the beasts so that they fulfill his will in one way or another. In this world, we may often feel, brothers and sisters, at times as though our great God is nowhere to be found, 
Rather, we seem to be cast upon the wind. We're just going from one great power ruling, of, ruling over us to another. The Cyruses, the Dariuses, the Alexanders, they're all called great. They come and go. And yet our God, the great God, is, as Darius confesses in verse 26, the living God, enduring forever. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, and his dominion will be forever. Lastly, for you here who have not yet trusted in Christ, the great lion of the tribe of Judah, you too are pictured in the typology of this chapter. Do you know that? You too are in this chapter. Daniel is a picture of Christ. Darius is a type of Pontius Pilate. And yet, if you are not a believer, you also are pictured here as the enemies of Christ, the enemies of Daniel, the magicians and the conjurers. And just as with the enemies of, God, enemies of Daniel, God's judgment came upon them, they were cast into the pit of death. It says, quote, they had not reached the bottom of the den before the lions overpowered them and crushed all their bones. So also for the enemies of Christ, they shall too one day be cast into the pit of hell. If you are not a Christian, that is you. You will be cast into the pit of hell with another lion, not the good lion, the evil ravenous lion, Satan. As Christ says that hell, quote, has been prepared for the devil and his angels, and there too you shall be cast for eternity. There is another lion, a more powerful lion, Jesus Christ. The lion of the tribe of Judah, he tasted death so that you might not have to. And though you be his enemy, he will forgive all your sins and receive you into his kingdom. He will pull you out of the pit of death and give you eternal life. And he will protect you so that the other lion can never harm you. All this he offers to you today. The only thing you have to do is receive it by faith. I pray that be you here today. Let's pray. Well, Father, we are so tiny as we consider the great forces at work in this world. Nations, rich, powerful men, companies, technology. So often we seem to just be afloat. And yet, Father, the reality is everything is controlled by you. And everything is serving you. Just as you could call Cyrus your anointed, insofar as he, though he did not know you, accomplished your will, all things are accomplishing your decree. We thank you, Lord, that though we feel small, yet one day we shall come to the heavenly Jerusalem. Father, I pray that you would help our hearts to be set on that Jerusalem and to not be set on this earth. Father, would you help us, as we saw with the reading of the law, to be lovers of God, lovers of that heavenly country, not lovers of the things of this world. Help us to not forget that Jerusalem. And Lord, we pray for those who do not know you here, who are as yet in the jaws of death. Oh God, would you deliver them this day. We pray all this in the name of Christ.